0: Hey guys, hope all is well. A while ago, I had a really great conversation with um, Richard Kosh in my man cave here in Amsterdam. Richard Kosh is the author of the 80-20 principle, and he is a guy who's pretty much under the radar. You won't find that many YouTube videos, or um, he has a lot of books, but you don't see a lot of um, his personal stuff. And um, I've uh, gotten to um, to know him a little bit better uh, at our meeting before and after as well, and uh, it's a really, really interesting character. Um, we didn't really talk about money that much, but I heard from um, from some sources that he's worth like 300 million dollars, and uh, he works like one hour a day, so that's truly inspirational. Um, he is the embodiment of um, uh, the quote, and it's his own quote, um, most of what we do is a complete waste of time. And there are a few things that are incredibly important. And, uh, he is a master at focusing on the things that are incredibly important and, um, really interesting guy. So, uh, I really enjoyed this conversation I had with Richard Koch, and, um, I hope you have, have a, you enjoy it as well and, um, enjoy this podcast. Take care. Bye. Okay, so I'm here with the one and only Richard Kosh. Is that the way that I pronounce your name? Yeah, that's pretty good. It's Kosh. Kosh. Rhymes with posh or yeah. dosh or <laughs> anything like that. Yes, and we're yeah. here in Amsterdam. Yes, I'm here in
1: Amsterdam for five weeks, special okay. offer.
0: But, uh, what brings you in Amsterdam?
1: Partly because it's meant to be cooler. So I live in Portugal at this time of near- year normally, and... Uh, I thought, well, it'd be nice to come to Amsterdam. I know the temperature in Amsterdam is going to be much lower in Portugal. And today in Amsterdam, the temperature is 35, 36, 37 degrees. I think yesterday was the uh, the hottest day ever. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so so I decided to come to a cool place. It's 27 degrees now in portugal today so, it's uh yeah, 36 or whatever here so basically but, uh, it's, it's your
0: fault that it's so hot over here
1: yeah i'm totally responsible yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so no it's
0: for me it's a great honor that you're here um i think you are one of the the people that i quote the most whenever i do seminars uh, one of the quotes i use a lot is uh most of what we do is complete waste of time and there are a few things that are rec- incredibly important and uh I think nowadays, now it's t- 2019, but 2020, 21, I think that is more uh, obvious and important than ever, don't you think? Yes.
1: I mean, my litany is always that people do far too many things and they do uh, things which detract from value, that you subtract value by doing so much. Yeah. And my, my mentor, Bill Bain, always used to, to say, you know, don't mistake action for uh success or don't let no what do you say he used to say don't let action drive out thought and one of the things that i always try and do and one of the things i try and preach to the people anyone that will listen to me is that uh we need to think and i set aside hours each day just to think about a particular issue yeah and uh, most people don't have the luxury of being able to do that because yeah. people have to work and they think they have to be busy and they think they have to do lots and lots of things. And the whole culture is t- towards frenetic activity and striving and all the rest of it. Whereas I'm trying to say, well, try and think about the things which m- matter, which really matter. Hmm. On any dimension, making money and personal relationships, on family issues, uh, on what you want to achieve in life. Yeah. It, what does it look like when you think for hours? Is it like you sit down and you think, or you go on a bike ride, or you ride down? Like, What does it look like? Typically, I, I do all of those things, but what I like to do is sit on my fish pond. I've got a fish pond in Portugal. I've got five very big carp. They're far too big because I feed them too often. That's another thing that I do too often. Uh, but I sit in a sort of a very comfortable chair, and I have a pad of paper next to me. And a pen, no computer, no phone, um, nothing. And I have a, a pad of paper, and on the pad of paper, I will write what I'm trying to decide. So I just, it looks at me, recriminating. It actually looks at me and uh, says, you know, you, Richard, you've got to try and decide this issue. And I look at it, and it's a blank piece of paper with a heading with five words or something like that. And then I just think. And I will, I will sort of meditate for a little bit perhaps or I'll just sort of sit back and think I may read something that's relevant to it. And then I put it to one side and then I just simply write. Mm. And that's my way of thinking because if, if I actually write something down it comes from probably the depths of somewhere, the mm. unconscious mind or whatever. I'm not intending to write down what I write down but mm. I write down what it is. And then I just stop and then I might go for a little walk around the garden come back to it. And sometimes it takes me 10 minutes, Ilko, to, to actually decide the thing that I'm trying to decide. And sometimes, after an hour, I still haven't decided, and then I give up. Yeah. And then I will go for a bike ride, or I will go for a walk, or I will just leave it and sleep on it. Yeah. Well, before I go to sleep, very often, I actually write something down and say, of course I'm going to sleep, but by the time I wake up, I want to have thought mm. about this particular mm. issue, and then I put it out of my mind by reading a book, uh, usually a fiction, usually a novel, uh, sometimes non-fiction. But basically, I don't want to go to 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 sleep actively thinking about it. I want to let it seep down to the unconscious mind. Yeah, and it's amazing how often you know you get up and you get the answer. Sometimes I don't. I'm not conscious of the fact that I've even been thinking at all, even unconsciously about it. Um and then when I get up, the answer's there. Hmm. Alternatively, I might wake up and this is a downside to, to this, I might wake up at five o'clock or six o'clock in the morning. Uh, and I know the answer. And sometimes I actually it comes in a dream, a sort of you know, dream and I I'm I'm not only half aware of what the dream is. But when I wake up, I know what the answer is, hmm. and it's just uh, it's just amazing. Hmm. But the unconscious mind will only work on things that are really important, so it's a very eighty twenty kind of device. Yeah. So
0: how did you get? How did you find out about the eighty twenty principle? How did you create the eighty twenty
1: principle? Uh, I certainly didn't create it. This was this, as, as you know, I'm sure, is something which originates from Vilfredo Pareto, the uh, late nineteenth century. Uh, Italian-Swiss economist who was working in the University of Lausanne at the time. Uh, And he wrote a book in 1876, 18, sorry, 1896, 1897, on, uh, it's it's on uh, economic principles. But in part of the book, he alludes to the fact that in the 19th century, he examined money and wealth and he saw that it would, there was a relationship between the number of people at any particular income level and the level of income. And it was an inverse relationship. So obviously, the, the higher up you go in terms of the socioeconomics go, the richer people are, uh, the fewer of them there are. But what really excited him was that that, that was a logarithmic relationship. You, know, you could absolutely plot a straight logarithmic line if you were using semi-log paper. And so that meant that you could be absolutely sure that there would be very, very few things which would be in the top category. And then what he did was he compared the data uh, for his own time to um, income and wealth uh, data from France, from Italy, from Switzerland, any country where he could get the data from As where he started with British data, English data actually. Uh, and then he constructed these curves, and lo and behold, they're all exactly the same shape. And then he reduced it to algebra, and it was the formula worked almost perfectly. And then he got historical data from the 16th century, the 15th century, and so on and so forth. And those those graphs were exactly the same as well. And so the guy was dancing around. I mean, I, I don't think he jumped in the bath or out of the bath and said Eureka. But it was kind of that that sort of intensity thing. And he was really saying that there are very few things that matter. At least that was my interpretation of it. And it didn't just apply to wealth; it you know, also applied to other phenomena, agricultural yields, and other things as well. And so I came across this when I was working in the Bodleian Library in Oxford as an undergraduate, as a student. I was, I think, nineteen years old and arrested. And I was reading this book. It was in French. Now, my French isn't perfect by any means, but I improved my French a lot because I wanted to make absolutely sure that I'd understood you know, what the guy was saying. And then it was for me a eureka moment also because I thought, yeah, this is something which is not just an economic phenomenon. It's something which you could relate to anything. Uh, later, I related it to business. But it also... Uh, was relevant to me I I was studying history and at Oxford the history examinations uh, only happen at the end of your undergraduate degree you take one examination after a semester after one term um, and then nothing until the end of the course and then you have to write in my day you had to write 11 different papers so for three hours, twice a day you had to write the papers but the interesting thing was that The number of questions that they asked was huge, but you only had to answer three or four of these questions. And so when I was preparing for my exams, what I did was to study the form. I mean, one of the things that I have always been interested in is horse racing and uh, they have something called the form. So, you know, if you go to a, a race meeting, you get a racing paper or you get it online these days, and it tells you everything about the horses that are participating in the race and what their previous form has been, in other words, which races they've been in and where they came and, and what weight they were carrying and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I said, well, why can't I study the form for my history exams? Uh, and that's what I did so I actually got all the papers from the history exams for each of the 11 uh, different subjects and I compared those year on, year out uh, to, to um, which questions came up really and I, I saw that there were certain questions on any paper so for example in 18th or 19th century history of Europe there was always a question about the French Revolution. There was always a question about the Chartist Movement of 1848, 46 or 48, I can't remember, 48, I think. Uh, there was always a question about the origins of the First World War and so on and so forth. They asked the question in different ways. They had a quote usually. They, they put a spin on it or the rest of it, But it was basically the same question. Okay. Hmm. So I said to myself, why, oh why, would I bother to learn or to revise all of those subjects when actually I only have to answer three or four questions on each paper. And I am pretty certain that if I researched six subjects, and six was the magic number, sometimes seven, uh, there was something like a 99% chance that I could get at least three of the questions that I wanted to answer and probably four. Hmm. And that's what I did. And so, it, you know, I thought, well, this is a very practical principle. You know, I, I, was, I suppose I was taking a bit of a chance. But I wasn't really, because if, if, if you got all these things for the last 10 or 20 years and you knew that there were going to be these questions, well, I did spectacularly well in my exams, and, and no one could work out why, because mm. I wasn't reckoned to be. I certainly wasn't one of the hardest-working students. I wasn't reckoned to be one of the smartest although I was perhaps cunning but you know I wasn't you know, I didn't you know, spend enormous time in the libraries I didn't have that sort of depth of knowledge that most people have mm. but I did spectacularly well and the reason I did spectacularly well was, was simply the method it wasn't that I was incredibly intelligent or knowledgeable or mm. whatever it was a method which mm. worked and so I thought well you know you can apply this to anything you can apply this to your personal relationships you can apply it to your your life And it's been a kind of um, consistent theme. Hmm. And it's like all good ideas, all very useful ideas. It's desperately simple.
0: Yeah, and it's a principle. It's a principle,
1: yeah. Yeah. It's a principle, yeah, exactly. There are very few principles. I mean, in science, there are a few principles. Like, you know, if you're a physicist, then quantum mechanics, you have to understand quantum mechanics. Or before that, you have to understand Newton's laws of motion and, and so on. Um, but there aren't many of those things. If you're a chemist, you have to understand the uh, periodic table and so on and so forth. There are always three or four things yeah. in any subject yeah. which if you really, really understand them, then you can answer almost any question, whether it's an examination question or whether it's something much more important in life. Yeah. Like, you know, how what does this business need to do to be successful? Yeah. There are very few answers to those questions. I mean, I I studied and worked as a strategist for about, I suppose, well, I suppose I still do in a way as an investor uh, for 20 years, 30 years. I was a consultant, God help me, for 10 years. Uh, And I looked back on it and thought, well, actually, there are only about five or six tools which are really, really useful. Hmm. So, for entrepreneurs, you know, one of the things that you've absolutely got to understand is the segmentation in your business. In other words, what are the people that you compete against? What are the different products that you have, which are different? If you if you face different competitors in different products, each product is probably a separate segment. Mm. A uh geographical market can be a separate segment a technology can be a separate segment a price point could be a separate segment expensive versus cheap goods and so on and so forth yeah so there are only there are only a few possibilities although the number of permutations is very very large yeah but if you understand that then you you know what you need to do is understand what market share you have relative to the largest competitor in each segment so this goes back to the Boston Consulting Group Growth Share Matrix, what's popularly called the Boston Box now, where you have on the one axis you've got the market growth rate and on the other you've got your relative market share. Relative market share meaning what is your market share divided by the biggest competitor that you face, whether they're bigger or smaller than you are. And in that that box you'll remember there are stars, there are question marks, there are um, dogs and, and there are cash cows. And by far the most attractive part of that matrix is a star business where you have, where you are bigger than anybody else in your particular niche, and the niche is growing at at least 10% a year. The market size is growing, or the future market size is reckoned to be growing uh, by more than 10% a year. Yeah. And if you are a star business, or if you have a star business, or if you have several businesses, but one of them, just one of them is a star business, It's nearly always true that that business is going to be immensely more valuable in the future and much more valuable than all the other businesses that you have because the market growth will make it bigger and because if you are the largest, you should be the most profitable in that market and you should be able to basically increase your profitability relative to your competitors and ultimately by having the lowest cost product or the best product in the marketplace, drive yeah. everyone else out of business and effectively have a monopoly. Yeah. So, you know, that's just one of the tools, but it's the place that I always start with. Yeah. Because if you don't have a star business, you've got to work out how to get one. If you do have a star business, you've just basically got to invest the hell out of that business. You know, yeah. pay the maximum attention, put all your effort into making the product much, much better than it is, and all your effort into making it lower cost if you if you can possibly do that. Yeah. And if you do that, you'll make a fortune. Yeah. And if you don't, you won't. Yeah, yeah. And this is basically your investment strategy as well, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, now, what makes it interesting is that sometimes you don't work out what the segmentation is until quite late in the day. Uh, I'm currently thinking about a business where I invested about four, four years ago. thought that the business had a, you know, a really, really strong relative market share position. But now I'm realising that actually it doesn't. And it's, it's a bit upsetting in a way <laughs> because for one thing, you know, you've been wrong and your managers are wrong as well, but, but you're certainly not pointing that out to them. Uh, and in another way, it's quite distressing because this business that you thought might potentially be worth hundreds of millions of uh, pounds or dollars or euros or whatever uh, may actually be worthless. And uh, so it's a, it's a little bit disconcerting. But But once you've worked out... What the segmentation really is, then you know how to to concentrate on it. And again, there were you know in this particular case, I, I won't give the specifics in case anyone recognises the business or the sort of business it's in. But but the, there were there were two sides to the business. One side which is basically a protected part of the market where you're serving um, large companies and where the product uh, actually is uh, in a sense is within their sphere of influence and there's another part of the market which is a freer part of the market this is this is actually a business where my company is actually an intermediary company so it's it's a little bit difficult to describe without naming it but but the 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 point is that the the part of the market where it's incredibly valuable to have a high market share. In the other part of the market, it's, it's not very important. Mm. But all of the attention has been going <laughs> to the place where it shouldn't have gone yeah. uh, because it was high turnover and you know everyone thinks they want sales in a new business and all the rest of it. But actually what you don't want sales what you really want is something that's very profitable. And in the early days of business when nothing's profitable, it's very easy to overlook the fact that, that there, are, there are only some parts of the business which can become enormously profitable. Mm. And other parts, even at high scale, are probably not going to make very much money. And where did you go
0: wrong with this investment? What was the...
1: What did, where did we go wrong? I think where we went wrong was we had a fantastic deck of KPIs, of key performance indicators. Unfortunately, the most important uh, KPI was not on the deck, and the most important KPI was not a particular market where there are very, very strong network effects. Mm. And this is another theme of mine, you know, yeah. after relative market share. You know, can you be in a business where there are network effects which mean that the market works for you rather than you working for the market? Uh, where uh, fundamentally, the bigger the market, the more valuable it is. Mm. And, uh, and therefore, everybody wants liquidity, everyone wants you know, the business to be as big as possible. And you don't even need to work at marketing in many cases to, to make that the case. As long as you're positioned in the slipstream of something that has very strong marketing, uh, very strong network effects. Mm. What's, the, what's your first investment you ever made? Like, when was your first investment you ever made? The first serious investment I made was in Filofax. And that was made uh, in 1991, I think. And Filofax, had, Filofax made personal organisers. In the days when personal organisers weren't electronic, they were like a wallet, and you wrote in them. And it was a ring binder, so you could you know, basically construct your own pieces of paper and update them and all the rest. Of it. Very, very primitive technology. But Filofax had been enormously successful as a mail-order business in the 1970s and 1980s, and it was almost a fashion accessory. You know, Filofax would sell in London for £60, and it was a leather wallet with a six-ring binder and some pieces of paper. So, in fact, it cost almost nothing to make, but it would retail for for £60. So it was enormously profitable and became very, very fashionable and all the rest of it. Unfortunately... Uh, the business was then outcompeted by a lower cost competitor who came in, did a deal with WH Smith, one of the very big retailers and uh, priced it not at £60 but at £20 and it cost £10 to make so they could get a very nice margin and Filofax almost went bust and it was at that point that, that that my consortium of investors became interested in it because we actually understood what was happening uh, and nobody else did the the management and the owners of the company thought it was because the yuppie was dead because the stock market had collapsed in 1987, there are all sorts of weird and wonderful explanations or rationalisations of why people weren't buying filofaxes the truth was that people were buying personal organisers, they just weren't buying filofaxes, mm. they were buying these cheap cheap and nasty products uh so uh we bought a controlling interest in the company for almost nothing i, mean, I think it was two million pounds it was a ridiculously small amount of money because it was going bust um and what we did was to focus the business and again we used the 80-20 principle we discovered that although they had 500 different products only four of them were profitable well wow. And we focused on those. And they were their actual standard products, so a standard fill. The the guy uh, who'd taken over the business, effectively the father, and all credit for him, that guy called David Collishan, who'd taken this business again Mm -hmm. when it was worth almost nothing about three decades earlier and made it very, very valuable. Uh, thought that he was in the publishing business because he thought people could actually construct their own file of facts. If they were interested in bird watching, they could, you know, basically get all the bird watching pages and then they could construct their own data of birds that they've watched and they put it all in the file of facts and all the rest of it. So he thought he, he actually had a publishing business. What he didn't have, uh, what he what he really had was actually a diary business which uh, which became very, very fashionable and which enabled people to collect all the valuable data that they they wanted. But most of that could be provided in a standard fill. So, you know, you had the one which was most popular had a London tube map and it had uh, train timetables. This is before the internet really got going. Uh, And so what we did was to cut out the vast majority of the products. We then lower the cost of our product because although Filofax was was uh, losing relative market share it had roughly the same market share as the co-leader which would come in with a very cheap product company called Microfile and so well, we basically made our product lower cost than theirs which wasn't very difficult to do because mm-hmm. we had not only did we have the volume from Britain but we also had volume from many other markets around the world including america so we actually had higher overall volume so higher manufacturing volume and equal marketing volume in the uk and any other market and we took the price down and we you know marketed the hell out of the one or two or three particular products and then we got back to a situation where we had an in effect a monopoly Product of very high relative market share, mm. and then of course nothing. The fascinating thing about business, as you know, is that nothing stands still. So at that stage, you know, people like Siam were then trying to experiment with electronic organisers, and again, the conventional wisdom within the company that we now owned uh, was that these things would never work, and it's true they didn't work very well to start with. But of course, eventually they did, and eventually you ended up with something like the iPhone, which you know completely makes it unnecessary to have uh, except as a you know as an accessory for dinosaurs like me possibly like you i don't know but people people actually want something physical and arrested but it then becomes a very niche product so fortunately we managed to sell this business before the segmentation had had clearly changed Mm. did you see him Yes, we saw it, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we, didn't, we didn't see anything like the iPhone, etc. No. but we knew that these things would work. Yeah. So we sold out in 1997. We got made a seven times return on our money, which mm-hmm. sort of wasn't bad for eight years or seven years or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, but we were also very lucky because, because actually we didn't initiate the sale. Uh, a company called Dayrunner of the US, which was the file, American equivalent, actually bid for the company, hmm. and uh, and so we said yes, <laughs> pretty smartish, to to their takeover bid. Yeah, uh, and um, they thought that we were going to fight the bid because it was a it was a p- publicly quoted company, uh, but we said no. You know, after putting up some token resistance and getting a ten p price increase, we. Uh, we actually agreed to the bid. And it worked out very well for them for about a year or so, and then you know the business basically disappeared. Yeah. And um, how often do you invest? How often? Well, there are several different answers to that. Um, one is when we've got money, and another answer is when we have a really attractive opportunity, and sometimes those two don't necessarily coincide <laughs> at the mm. time uh but in terms of how often do i invest probably about once a year yeah and i hold tend to hold the investments for seven or eight years sometimes i sell within a year or two but that's usually because i think we've made a mistake yeah um and you invest in um you
0: don't invest like in stocks on the stock market but you invest in real companies and yes you, you become yep. a stakeholder
1: Yes, I'm a venture capitalist yeah. essentially. Yeah. I mean, but an amateur venture capitalist. I do it with my own money. Mm-hmm. So it's taken quite some time to build up, you know, a significant war chest of money. Yeah. But, you know, it's much better than having partners, you know, cuz I can make decisions very very quickly. Yeah. I have one partner who works with me, who works full-time, and in, in accordance with the 80-20 principle, he does all the work and I collect most of the money. Yeah. Uh, but but nevertheless, you know he has the same interest as me. Every time we sell something, he gets a certain percentage of the, of the uh, money that comes from selling it. Yeah. But we don't sell too early. We basically, if if something is growing, then you never really get the value from it. I mean, you might have a forty times EBITDA multiple, but if the business is growing and continues to grow at one hundred percent a year for ten years, you know you'd be a, a fool to to actually sell the business. Yeah. So we tend to hold on to business, and we tend to work with the, the managers in the business, supplying some strategic advice. So we try and work out, are there adjacent segments that they can go into? Can they really dramatically reduce the cost of the product? Mm-hmm. You know, Again, I wrote a book called Simplify a, a few years ago, and that argued that, that there are two ways that you can uh, increase the size of the market or the profitability of any business that you have. One of those ways is to reduce the price and the cost to below a half of what it is currently. So I took all of the examples of fantastically successful companies in the, in the last century, ranging from Henry Ford with Model T, where he actually reduced the cost well below half and reduced it within 10 years to a third of what it had before. And the market doesn't grow by you know, three times or even ten times. In that situation, I think the market grew by 200,000 times or whatever. So, you know, if you can if you can get this magic thing of getting the cost down below a half of what it is today for an equivalent product in terms of quality, um, then you can increase the market size enormously. Uh, and we call that price simplifying. And there's also something called proposition simplifying, which is that you make the product much easier to use much more useful and in many cases much more beautiful so the iPhone is a fantastic example of that before that you know the the uh, uh, blackberries yeah yeah. uh, and and indeed you know if you think back to um, one of those things called where where you had the mp3 players and what was a Japanese company that, that introduced the first one of those? that was very successful about 1980, uh, and the, basically the iPhone is nothing more than an improved version of that particular mm-hmm. product. But you know, instead of being able to have, you know, I don't know, those MP3 players, you might be able to get 20 or sometimes 100 tunes in it. You know, you can have thousands in the in the iPhone. Yeah, unlimited. Yeah, and yeah. you and you and you you know you can do all sorts of things with it. You know, it yeah. can show you who the artists are. You know, it can do you know all these wonderful things that electronics can do. Yeah. Um, and so those things are are basically what we call proposition simplifies, and that is another way to make the market. You know, hugely bigger yeah. And the iPhone market. Absolutely has transformed the the telephone market. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know they did it. They did it before um, with iTunes. They did it later. You know with other products as well. Yeah. They, they did it with the with the iPad as well. And also, you know, you can think about Google Search as being you know fantastically. You know, it's a search engine, but it's not as we know it or as we knew it before. You know, it can do things so amazingly fast. Yeah. And on anything. Yeah. Uh, so we you know try and get someone to in the company I always say well can you be a price simplifier or can you be a proposition simplifier there are very very few companies that can do both although arguably Amazon has done both because the Amazon you know if you think about the Kindle for example that's that's something which is much lower cost because it doesn't have the physical cost of making a book uh, but it's also more convenient because you, you have you know you can buy a book instantly you don't need to go to a bookstore and you can store millions of these things yeah. um, So you know can you do both? Can you actually provide something which is so much simpler to use and so much better and so much more beautiful or yeah. can you actually reduce the price to less than a half of what it was before yeah. and if you can actually do both then you know you you've got a trillion dollar company actually. Yeah. yeah so um
0: what are your personal um principles when it comes to for example business rules so uh i think you're uh, uh you do a lot by email but you don't do a lot of phone calls you don't i think i don't think you do a lot of meetings uh what,
1: what some of you thinking over there and 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 Whatever. I hate telephone calls. Yeah. I absolutely hate telephone calls, and it doesn't make a difference if you. It does make a difference, obviously, if you have a, a secretary or a PA who screens them and makes a, make, actually presses the buttons isn't it, these days. Uh, but I, I, I really dislike telephone calls because they always take longer than you expect. Yeah. Telephone calls are for people that you know very well, and you can you know basically explore at quite a deep level with them over the telephone. But face-to-face is infinitely better than uh, a telephone call in my experience. If you really want to get to the heart of something and you want to discover something that you didn't know before. If you just want to give instructions in a phone call or an email, will I actually do. I like email very much because it's asynchronous that you can actually, you don't have to look at it. I mean, you were telling me earlier about your internet fasting idea which says that, you know, maybe you confine yourself online to two hours in every 20, 24 hours. You can do that with email. You don't have to be in the same time zone. You don't have to arrange to, you know, pay attention at the same time. And uh you don't have to answer it either. You know, you can sure. take your time answering it. It's not insistent, whereas, you know, telephone someone's on the telephone you you know, you've got you've got to speak to them or even a personal meeting is like that. So I think that I, I love I love email, but equally you need to be very discriminating. It, it took me a long, long time to realise that you didn't have to answer every email. Yeah, uh, I thought it was impolite yeah. not to do that. And you know, when people write to me because they've read my books and they say nice things about the books and all the rest of it, well, it's flattery really works. But you know, very often uh, they went then ask you a question. And if you're going to, if you're actually going to um, answer the question properly. You might need to think about it. And sometimes I do answer them because because it's interesting. The question is interesting. And I think. Well, actually, if I got if I got the answer to that, I, I might be able to use that in some some other area. So sometimes I answer if the questions particularly good. But nowadays I don't I don't answer the vast majority of emails, or I I'll answer them purely formally and say mm. thank you very much, or I get my PA to to actually do that. Yeah. But sometimes. Sometimes I've had investments that people pitched to me, you know, initially via email, and one or two of them I've actually invested in, and I've made a lot of money out of that. So, so you don't want to cut the, you don't want to sort of cut things off, but you do want to be in charge of making a decision about how much time that you allocate to it, and you know, you can glance at an email and decide within 10 seconds, you know, they say that when you meet someone for the first time, you know within 10 seconds whether you like them or not. Well, it's a bit like that with email, isn't yeah. it? That, that, you know, you think, oh, God, this, yeah. know, this person's an idiot or this person is sort of, you know, I don't want to get involved with them in one way or another. But sometimes, actually, you think, well, this is this is maybe an interesting person, in which case I normally try and schedule a meeting if it's physically possible. Mm. Uh, and if they're really interested in meeting me, then, then you know they, they can come and see me in Portugal or in, or in Cape Town or wherever I am. Yeah. Uh, and and that's you know sometimes that's that's good. Yeah. What's what does an average day for you look like? Oh, an average day. Well, typically, this is. Uh, am I going to tell you the truth? I think I think I might. as so well tell you the truth. Uh, I will. I will wake up usually quite late. Uh, by most people's standards I will wake up about 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock having gone to bed and read for about an hour I probably go to sleep about midnight or just after midnight so I get 8 hours sleep I think it's very important to sleep Uh, and it's particularly important if if you want to set your unconscious mind working on something and I don't have an alarm clock uh, and I don't set my iPhone very once or twice a year maybe I mean, you have to catch to a flight or whatever yeah and I try and make flights later in the day anyway because I don't, yeah. <laughs> don't like getting up anyway it's a long way of saying I'm lazy so <laughs> so uh so then I will get up and <clears throat> I will the first thing that I will do is sort of you know talk to the dog and feed the dog and the second thing that I will do is take a cup of tea to my partner who is even lazier than I am Uh and and then I will glance at. I must admit, I will glance at my emails, but I won't answer them <laughs> unless it's something very, very urgent, or I really have forgotten to do. Uh, and then I will go and sit outside in the sunshine, preferably. If it's um, the ideal temperature for me, it's is probably between about twenty and twenty three degrees, or if it's a bit hotter than that to have some dappled shade so I'm l- very lucky because I've got you know very nice house in Portugal very nice house in Spain very nice house in Cape Town uh, and I will try and sit somewhere where I can actually think about something so very often I'll pick up a book that I was reading the day before and just sort of you know read for an hour or so uh, then I will sit back and say well what am I going to do today what am I going to achieve today and what can I do that that actually isn't going to be much effort or is going to be very interesting. I try and have one thing that I do during the day which, if I I do it, I I will feel that I have advanced um, my purpose in life, in a way, which might be to keep myself amused, it might be to do something that I think is very interesting, it might be to make money, it might be to help someone. You know, I, I try and set myself an objective, but I try and set it such that it's, you know... It, it's time bounded it's, you know, I wouldn't set myself something that I can't do within usually an hour sometimes a little bit more very often even ten minutes you know, so that's what I want to do and then I will do it and then I will basically take the rest of the day off so I'll go for a two hour cycle ride uh, I won't eat anything until I get back from my cycle ride so by that stage it's usually about one or two o'clock in the afternoon hmm. why is that there- well, I do this intermittent fasting. I do the sort of 16-8 thing. So if you finish eating at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock, you then have to have 16 hours elapse yeah. before you can actually eat something. It's true when I go out on my cycle ride, I take an energy drink with me, and it's got some fruit stuffed in it. So, Or sometimes I will steal a, uh, an orange from one of the orchards I cycle past. But um, basically nothing apart from a little bit of fruit. And... Um, and then I have breakfast, and then, after I've had breakfast, you know I will either meet people, I have phone calls uh, I'll take the dog for a walk i'll do whatever I want to do, or I'll sit on my fish pond and think, or I'll sit on my fish pond and do some reading hmm. and in the evening, I generally see people go out for dinner hmm. and I have a very simple life, basically, but hmm. I try and make it so that it's not stressful you know any stress that there is, I try and eliminate or just basically delegate that to somebody else. Yeah. Uh, or if I really do need to do it, I try and get it out of the way as quickly as possible. Yeah. So. Well,
0: what would you do if you would be 20 years old right now and you had to start over, or 18 years old, you'd start over? How would you run your days?
1: Would you run your days the same way? You know, I think that's an impossible question. Neil. it's an interesting question, but I think it's sort of impossible because. Am I me with my experience? If you would be you with your experience and your knowledge? Yeah, but still 20 years old. Then I wouldn't be 20 years old, and I'd think that whatever I was trying to tell myself was a load of rubbish. But if, let's say, I mean, it's a good question because it's a theoretical question. What would I do? I think I would go and live in a foreign country, go and do something. I wouldn't do anything related to business. Uh, I would try and get some experience... I would try and have a a good love affair or two, you know, but not, you know, as an objective, but something which sort of, you know, crops up. Because obviously at that age, you're very interested in sex and you're very interested in personal relationships and some of us still are. Uh, And uh, so I think I would go for some sort of experience. I wouldn't do. What I wouldn't do is what everyone in America and many other countries that have been affected by Anglo-American culture, which I on the whole I think is good but i wouldn't try and be very ambitious i wouldn't be building my resume you know i wouldn't be trying to go to the best possible university well, i went to a you know i went to a very good university myself but but i would be trying to do something that i was really interested in mm. something that that consumed me something that actually i really wanted to do and if if there wasn't anything i really wanted to do then i'd go and have some experiences yeah one of the things I did when I was 17 was I went hitchhiking around Europe for um, three and a half months. Mm. Where I had In those days, there was a Labour government and they restricted the amount of foreign currency. It was a, what was called a balance of payments problem, that the exports were not as big as the imports and so anyone who went abroad could only spend a maximum of 50 pounds and you had to get the bank to insert this into your passport that, you know that you've been given this money and so you couldn't you couldn't go back and get another 50 pounds this was, this was for a year and 50 pounds then was worth more than i suppose in today's currency it would be i don't know 300 euro so it's not a lot to last for for uh you know three and a half months that's whatever. where you learned to steal oranges that's <laughs> where i learned to, to yes but uh actually i didn't steal oranges in those days because i didn't go past orange groves and I sh- i'm sure i would have done uh it's when you learn to stay in youth hostels or to sleep on the roofs or to sleep in you know um railway stations or parks or or whatever um youth hostels were places where i stayed, and they were fantastic because you met people mm. as well and mm. they were incredibly cheap i don't know if they still are um and you could get something to, to eat there. Uh, but the great thing was i went hitchhiking because hitchhiking is you meet people and if they like you they'll buy you a meal they sometimes put you up in their homes or give you a hotel room or something like that you know um so I learned how to sponge, I suppose, in, in, my, uh, in my time as a hitchhiker. But I would do something, I would travel. And, uh, but then even travelling today has become, you know, there is a, a sort of, you know, uh, a beaten path. And even the unbeaten paths, you know, you say, well, you know, you want to go to Vietnam or you want to go to China. Everyone always goes to the same places and they go to the same cities or they go to the same regions or they, they stay with the same sort of people. I would try and do something original um do something different do something you really want to do would be would be my advice Mm. and don't be in a hurry because there's loads of time in life you know i mean as you probably tell i'm getting on a bit in years now but i don't think that there's any hurry you know Mm. there's lots and lots of time and it's always true that if you define things by what you're interested in and what's important to you then uh and it's in a way it's Quite quite selfish but in a way. It's not because I don't think we can be useful to other people, and yes, we're unless we're really doing something which makes us, do, you know, come up with an original idea or do something that other people wouldn't have done. And so, therefore, I think in a way, it, being selfish is not being selfish, and, and it's necessary to to you know to make the most of whatever creative powers you can get. If you know what you're interested in, go and find somebody who knows. More about it in a company or as an individual, and try and learn everything that you possibly can from mm. that person. Mm. And I, you know, I, I believe in that sort of pre- apprenticeship model. Yeah. When I when I was when I was at university, we had a tutorial system where you basically wrote an essay every week and you read it out to your tutor, who was uh, Professor Don. You know, and that was you know that was. Very good, because they would then discuss it with you as though you were an intelligent human being, if your essay was any good, um, but I believe in apprenticeship, I believe that actually the way to learn something is to go and work with someone you can carry you know his or her bag, you know you can do useful things, answer the telephone or whatever, but learn from that person, yeah. Because, you know, there are some people in life who know things that other people generally don't know, and it's not immediately obvious who they are. And if you, you know, I mean, you were talking to, to me earlier about how you got your name, and, you know, it's, it might be a pop group, it might be uh, a sound engineer, it might be any anything at all that, that people are interested in. Then go to the very best person that you know or that you think is the best, even if they're not the most popular, and and sit at their feet essentially, yeah. and learn, yeah. learn until the point where either you're bored and you don't, you know, you, you you've done that and you want to do something else, or that you then have an idea to start a business. And I'm always encouraging people to start businesses because I think it's the most wonderful thing that anyone can do to introduce a new product or service that doesn't exist. All that exists, but is not no good you know that basically you can make ten times better or ten times cheaper or rest of it to be able to do that, you know to make your own mistakes, not to follow in a big company your way, not to do what other people are doing, not to do what 's been done before, even if you do it better, but to do something different that 's what that 's what I would encourage young people to do. Mm. That's what I encourage old people to do as well and middle-aged people and everyone in between because that's the way that that society is enriched. But it's also the way that individuals are enriched. I mean, the great thing about being an entrepreneur is that you get rewarded from that Mm. if you provide something that other people want. Mm. And if you don't provide something that other people want, you don't get rewarded. And I think that's incredibly fair. Uh, And so, therefore, if you're, you know, if you're, uh, I would say to some of your entrepreneurs, if it's not working out either do something dramatically different or stop hmm. and start again yeah because you know you it's, it's it's very very hard work and it's very exhausting and you know it's you have to dedicate yourself and it's just not worth doing that if it's not working so so you know but but to actually be successful in creating a market or in creating a product and company and particularly if you create a company like you know i think Apple is just such a wonderful example. You know, Apple almost died several times, but it then became a fantastic company which not only had existing products, but was going to, I think in 20 years' time, Apple will have invented another five or ten iPhones. Or, you know, or not the iPhone, but a new yeah. iPhone equivalent. You know, and to be able to do that, I think, is just marvellous. To create a company which can do that on an ongoing basis is nothing short of a miracle. Mm. If you've got a chance of doing that, then I would encourage every, everybody to do that mm. because it's not only do you make a lot of money, but, you, you know, you have a lot of fun, you form a lot of friendships. When things go badly, it's a great thing because it tests your character and it tests your relationships with people. And you learn eventually, if you're any good, to to actually welcome that and to to thrive on those sort of setbacks and yeah. all the rest of it. So, yeah, so, but, but don't start a company too early. You know, only start a company when you really know what you want to do, and you want to know you know who you want to do it with, and you um, have got some ideas that other people haven't got. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. If you
0: look at um, doing less, and especially nowadays, it's tougher to do less because there's so many uh, impulses. I mean, just when you look at the iPhone, it's you get bombarded with messages and with notifications and everything. And um, when I, for example, teach the whole internet fasting principle or... Uh, stuff like that. A lot of people, they see the value in it, but they are nervous because they feel they get anxious whenever they are offline or not checking their email. Or What advice would you give people that actually want to live more sort of by nature and less by notifications and emails and all that stuff, but they feel the
1: anxiousness? What, what would uh, advice would you have for them? Anxiety, yes. Well, uh, that's, a, that's a good question. I can think of several different answers to that. One is that it's a little bit like stopping drinking or drugs or anything else, uh, or even eating. Uh, There's no half measures. You know, you can't have one drink a day if you're trying to give up alcohol. Uh, You can't even have one drink a week. You know, you you have to go cold turkey on that. So if you're trying to give up you know being dominated by online mechanisms then you know you might say two hours a day but in some ways it's easier in a way to stop i agree to stop for a week yeah or a month or something like that or completely or completely and then the other thing that you can do is just go somewhere else so that you're not trapped by the patterns that you have yeah now, of course, you know, you might have a job and you might have relationships, you might have children. <laughs> it's, not, it's not easy to do that. But if you possibly can, just do something completely different. Hmm. Uh, and, and I would say that to anyone whose life is not working out, business is not working out, personal relationships not working out, you know, feeling mildly depressed or even very depressed, just go and do something different. Yeah. Throw yourself into something. Don't drift don't do nothing. You've got to do something. But do something which is, you know, in a different country with different people, you know, doing different things. You know, go to a country that you've never been to before where you can't speak the language. And make sure that you have to, you know, rent a rent a home there for six months or a year. Because then you'll be forced to change the pattern that that, that you have. So I think... No half measures, you know. Extreme measures, yeah. I like are, that. You know, are, are sort of are easier. Yeah, I agree. I struggled with my um,
0: with my health and my weight for a long time, and uh, the advice that you get from everybody is like everything by moderation, and you have to still have to enjoy and balance, you know, yes, balance be balanced, yeah, be yeah, and and, uh, and and then they and don't don't do don't make it too difficult for yourself, exactly, and you got to live and all that stuff, and. I'm 39 right now but till my 38th year I was just always struggling with food and uh and then I made the decision like okay never again in my life will I have sugar or will I have certain other foods and I will only drink water for the rest of my life and tea Mm -hmm. um and that was the moment that I got my freedom and but if I I know for a fact that if I would eat a donut right now or a bag of donuts I'll be 40 pounds 50 pounds heavier in three months and I would be back. It's it's the same with a drug addict. Like you can't tell a drug addict, like, yeah, you can have one snort of cocaine a month. Like you gotta live a little bit. It doesn't work. And I, I totally agree with the extreme measures thing. And mm. it's nobody almost nobody gives that advice. Yeah. It's it's uh and a lot of advice when it, for example when it comes to health or principles like this, it's always advice for the average almost. Mm. And um and that advice for me is the worst
1: advice ever. But let's take you. You were in the car coming over here. You were telling me about your idea of um, intermittent fasting on the internet, and you were saying you limit your online or your advice is to limit online consumption to two hours out of twenty-four. And I can see the I can see the appeal of it, and it's a dramatically um, better step in my opinion than than uh, being online all the time yeah um i know where you're why going. Yeah. yeah so but why not say well actually for a month not not you know yeah not, put put your phone away lock it away or you know don't 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 go online
0: yeah know? i don't have it here but i own a nokia a dumb phone i call it so <laughs> oftentimes i don't have an iphone with me um but Um, I agree the internet fasting principle, it's a good principle and it helps out a lot of people, but still you get the dopamine shot every day. Mm. So even if it's an hour, two hours, you're still, you're back into the addiction. And, um, and, uh, so I, I agree with, um, that it's, uh, it's better to cut it out completely. And so my advice to people about this is like, look at the things on your phone, for example, Mm -hmm. that are addictive and can you can you get rid of those completely? So for me, I I love watching YouTube videos or scrolling Instagram or stuff like that, and I cut that out completely. I mm. haven't watched a YouTube video in the last eighty-five days or something. And um, and but if because if I watch like one or two a day, like you get stuck into like the whole uh, stream of new videos and and suggested videos and it just doesn't work. So I completely agree with even with this with internet fasting, it's a cool principle but still and it, and it's uh it's it's better to be to do the internet fasting but it's even better to cut it out completely yeah
1: i mean one of the reasons that we're able to waste time the way that we do is because society has advanced to the stage where not only do we have these amazing products but also it's easier i believe to earn money now than it was 10 oh, 20 yeah. 50 years ago yeah it 's easier to have a rich social life than it was the same, the same thing yeah. society gets richer i mean what I, I believe that one of the reasons that socialism or you know social democracy, high government spending is more possible these days is because capitalism has worked so well mm. that that you know it produces all these goods despite having huge handicaps and despite people having a lot of money taken away from them in taxation. There's always you know there's so much to start with that it's possible and i I think the same thing is true about life one of the things that that is going on in society and in our personal lives I believe is the trivialization of life and because there are so many distractions mm. and because it's nice to have i mean i you know I've resisted having an iPhone you will know, go for for ages, but you know about Two years ago, I got it. And now I'm I'm addicted to my playlist. You know, I actually have music and I have a Bluetooth, you know, so I absolutely think it's wonderful. And sometimes I just stop, and I have to stop, you know, and say, no, I'm not going to do this for a month, or or at least I'm not going to do it for a day. Uh, And you... But you realise, and and Twitter, you know, I mean, the amount of time I waste on Twitter, is just obscene, you know, and... I don't even enjoy it, really. Actually, yes. I get a little bit angry. I, but I, I noticed your Twitter uh, yeah.
0: feed. Talking, yeah, he's angry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
1: it's 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 ridiculous. Yeah, and so, but it's very it's very hard to do. And the fact is that we can still have jobs and we can still earn money. Yeah, it's very... we, you can still do your job. I can still do my projects. You know, despite wasting all that time. Yeah. So that's why I live as I do in a in a almost in some ways. Am I a hedonist or am I a Puritan? I think I'm both. You mm. know, I really believe in enjoying life, but yeah. I also believe in the simple life, yeah. simple pleasures, like sitting and reading, sitting in the sunshine. Oh, of course, I've got the luxury of time to, to do that. And But you do realize that time is the most precious thing that you have. It's also the thing that you most undervalue. And this is, this is the trivialization of life. I mm-hmm. believe that we are actually meant to do great things mm. with our lives. I believe that we're... You know that everybody has inherent greatness; that they can do something, they can invent a product, they can invent a new way of doing things, they can invent some formula whereby people can enjoy their lives more, or th- or they can become kinder or more decent people, or they can provide for people in need or whatever. I believe that everyone should have a purpose like that. And how? What percentage of people actually do that? Almost no, hmm. almost zero. Hmm. And why is that? It's because it's not because they're not intelligent it's not because they don't have knowledge there's so much knowledge available on the internet today you don't need to go to university you know you basically anyone who really wants to find out about things can you can use books you know can use videos especially videos can even listen to podcasts you know it's all there yeah it's all there and yeah. it's mainly free yeah. or almost free yeah so why would people not aspire to do something it's because there is this, this great smorgasbord of trivial stuff that is available to all of us, yeah. which very rapidly becomes our master. Mm. So you know, you as soon as you wake up, you switch on your iPhone, yeah. you look at your messages, you look at your email, um, you send text to people, you receive texts, you go onto to YouTube, you know, you look go onto Instagram, you post something on social media, you know. Don't get me started about Facebook. You know, Mm. that's one thing which I just don't do. But how is it possible to actually believe that you're going to do something great if there's all this other stuff which is not great, which essentially is passive? It's like modern television. You know, one of the things that I hated as a child was my parents watching television every night. And I just wouldn't do it. I used to go in the kitchen and turn up, you know radio luxembourg maximum volume so i didn't hear the coronation street theme and and you know couldn't overhear the television but in a way youtube is the new television instagram's the new television 100%. you know and it's awful yeah. i mean it's great yeah but it's, I, yeah but it's awful yeah because you know i don't want to get religious or anything about this but i i just think people have got to do something great mm. and they've got to believe that their lives are important they're not we're not on Earth, just to have a comfortable life and to make money. We're here to do something which helps other people or expresses some creativity which is inherent in ourselves. we have never had the chance to do that before because people have been too busy earning their money. Nowadays, we can do that sort of thing. The resources to create something new and valuable are manifold, they're, they're legion. And yet, and I'm preaching to myself as much as to, to everybody else. And yet we just don't do it. Yeah. And why don't we do it? Because we're too busy, and this comes back to the 80-20 principle, we're too busy doing all these things which don't matter. Yeah. And how do you expect to do something which really matters in your life when you're spending so long, so enjoyably being distracted by things which doesn't don't matter. Does it matter whether you look at a YouTube video? Does it matter if you clock onto Twitter or or Instagram? Does it matter that you send all these text messages and receive these text messages? Does it matter that you're, you know, listening to music, you know, I don't know, eight hours a day or more than that? Does it matter that you're in tune with all the local, you know, all the latest trends and the rest of it? No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. And these... I was going to say bad things, but they're not necessarily bad things. But these distracting things drive out the possibility of really doing something with your life. Mm. And, you know, I I just wish that we could have all the benefits of these great products without the downsides. And what it comes down to fundamentally, and you were talking about it in relation to eating, is discipline. Mm. You know, we've got to be self-disciplined. And it's never been harder to be self-disciplined, yeah. and it's never been more necessary. Mm. And so that's why something like the eighty twenty principle I can get quite evangelical about, because, because you need to think about it: is this important? Would it matter if I didn't do this? And the answer is there. Mm. That's great. So you read, l- you wrote a lot of books.
0: How many books did you ri- write? Like twenty or so. Yeah. If People want to learn more about you and they have to read one of your books, which one would you recommend? What what's your best book?
1: It depends what their it depends what their objective is. If your objective is to make money and start a business, I would recommend I'd probably recommend Star, the Star Principle. Principle. Yeah. Um and I would say Simplify is probably a close number two. Mm. I would read those two books. Mm. If you want to know what to do with your life, I think the 80/20 principle is a good one. Or that I wrote a book called "Living the 80/20 Way," which is a very, very simple book, hmm. um, in te- deliberately simple. I found it very hard to write because because I wanted to. I had to pare it down to the essential. Yeah. I had a uh, a friend or a fan, really, an Australian couple who you know, uh, who took me under their wing a bit and I used to send them off for chapters and they said, no, far too complicated. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Reduce it. And I just reduced and reduced and reduced and I think it's a very, very, very good book. If you want to know about politics and society, I would recommend uh, Suicide of the West. Mm. It's quite interesting that Jonah Goldberg, quite a prominent American political theorist, came out with exactly the same title last year and actually the book is almost exactly the same in terms of its message and not the same in terms of the words and it's much longer and it's actually in many ways better than the book which I wrote with um, uh, my friend Chris Smith, Lord, Chris of, uh, Lord Smith of Thinsbury. But that was written back in 2006 uh, and it's a very short book. Uh, but if you're interested in politics and society, you will give me a plug for all these books, of aren't course. you? Of yeah, course. That's very kind. Uh And I think if if you're interested in possibly coming up with a a completely different business idea, um, then what would I recommend? Um, I would take one of my books at random that no one else is reading. (laughs) Hmm. But, you know, I've written all these books. Most of them are still in print. Uh, most of them start, sell, still sell reasonably well hmm. and uh, it gives me great it gives me great satisfaction in that it's nice to see a dutch version yeah. of the eighty twenty principle that book's been translated into 38 different languages yeah, now yeah and it gives me a lot of a lot of satisfaction yeah that's so great yeah. thank you so much for doing this that's my my great pleasure very very nice questions yes really appreciate it
0: and um I think you your message, uh, especially the eighty twenty, but also all the other wisdom that you have, it's great that you share it online and in your books. But your message, the eighty twenty message, is so important nowadays. So that's why I really wanted to have you here, and al- also, of course, for all of your wisdom and everything.
1: Well, thank you very much for for acting as a broadcast mechanism. For yeah. me. I don't actually do many of these things, and i maybe I should. Do you think I should do more of these? Well, I just I was just thinking. I was like, yeah, I don't know if. Uh,
0: but if you would start your own podcast, if you would have like, for example, a sidekick that mm. can ask you questions because you have so much knowledge and so much wisdom. And I notice when you're going, like it gets better and better and better. Mm. If you could have, um, have somebody just ask you questions and uh, for example, a weekly or even a monthly podcast where you can just go off for an hour or two hours, mm. that would be really valuable for maybe for yourself as well. Uh, but also for
1: listeners, obviously. You know, the interesting thing, Ilka, is that that, you you have obviously thought about what you're going to say, but you've got a little piece of paper in front of you. You've hardly referred to the piece of paper. This has been largely ad hoc. I like being asked questions by an intelligent person because then I come up with all sorts of things I wasn't intending to think of. If you'd asked me to prepare this yeah yeah it would not have been as interesting for no. me and I, I don't think it would be as interesting for other people yeah. and it's amazing how much more i can pull out from you know different yeah. different things according to the theme and according to the questions yeah. and i i do enjoy doing so so yes that's a very interesting idea thank you very or, much or have uh
0: uh your fans send in questions and yes. you can just answer the questions yeah and what I, the way I do my podcast, because now we are with the two of us, so we need like a studio. But mm. uh, I record ninety-five percent of all my podcasts by iPhone, because it has this dictaphone function on it, and I just push record and I just or answer questions or, and the audio is is great. Yeah. And uh, so there's a lot of ways to uh, to spread the message or
1: also use it as a creative outlet. So the technology is not entirely bad. So thank you you very much for inviting me into your podcast. we better stop here. Thank you very much indeed. Thank thank you. you. Bye-bye.